Look at Luke 10, or open up to Luke 10, rather, and as you do so, I want to ask Trevor to pull up the, the slide. The first song, the first slide to that last song really encapsulates what I want to, what I think that we ought to get away from this passage, and I think it may be a little surprising when we look at the passage, but if you read that, this life is an altar where I want to offer my soul and my mind and strength, and that's great. But we're, we're, we're doomed to failure in a certain sense, except for the fact that we're cleansed by your mercy to live a life worthy of the one who called my name. That juxtaposition there of, the, of the, the cleansing and enabling that Christ gives and then the call to live in a certain way is, is, is in large part what we're looking at this morning here in Luke chapter 10. So Luke chapter 10, we're going to start in verse 25. We're going to be talking about the, the character of a kingdom heir. We're going to see three-stage interaction that reveals what really is an awesomely unattainable character of a kingdom heir. Awesomely unattainable. And in verse 25, we see a question of how to become a kingdom heir posed. In the midst of Jesus' teaching, in the midst of him uh, leading his disciples and sending them out and having them come back. In verse 25, suddenly we read this. And a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, who, who is this guy? This is, this is a lawyer, an Old, an old Testament expert. Okay, not, not necessarily like a, a civil lawyer as we might think of it, but this is a guy who was supposed to know the Old Testament law well enough and to such a degree that he was the one you go to, to to ask for explanations and for implications and for applications. He was the one who was supposed to know the Torah well enough to be able to spread a knowledge of both the content and the, the, the resulting lifestyle to the others. They often abused that privilege and that role. Um, just a chapter later, in Luke 11, 45, uh, 46, Jesus says this. He says, Woe to you lawyers as well, for you weigh down men with burdens hard to bear, while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. And so we see the lawyers had a tendency to take God's law and impose greater and greater burdens upon the people. But this is the man who, in the midst of the crowd that's listening to Jesus, suddenly stands up, and he stands up with an attitude as well. He stood up and he put him to the test. He's seeking to entrap Jesus. It's not really a new concept, right, for Jesus. We see it happen quite regularly throughout his interaction with the religious leaders. Um, if you think of the, the religious leaders who came and they asked him, so Jesus, there was this woman who was married to a man and he died and she married his brother and he died and she married his brother and they went through seven brothers and in the end, you know, in the afterlife, who's, he, who's she going to be married to? And, and Jesus sees right through it and in a wonderful way just kind of shows them their foolishness and their ignorance. But they're trying to trap him in and, 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 and test him. And the same thing when they ask him in Luke 22, uh, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? all desiring to trap him in his response. And so this lawyer, this one who is learned in the Old Testament, who's respected and, and uh, venerated in that culture as one who should know, 
he stood up, desiring to put him to the test, and he said, he asked this question, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? In that question, he's basically saying, by doing what will I inherit eternal life? After finally accomplishing what will I be considered to be an inheritor of eternal life? There's a few assumptions in here. One, life continues after death. It's interesting that that's, that's understood, okay? It's not immediately assumed that that life after death is good, okay? There's an eternal life, heaven, and there's an eternal death, hell. There's eternal life in hell. Um, and, and those realities and the kind of the tenuousness of where you will go is understood in those days. The lawyer here, though, assumes what shall I do? He assumes that he must perform an action to receive the blessing of eternal life. So he asks that question. He asks the question that really at the core is the most intensive question that must be asked for any soul in existence. Eternity is coming for each one of us. And there is heaven and there is hell. And I'm not guaranteed eternal life. So that question of, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life is, is a vital question for each one of you here even to answer because this life, this temporal life could end at any given moment. And so if that question is not answered in the, in the affirmation of eternal life with Jesus, then, um, then hell is guaranteed. And so that question of what must I do to inherit eternal life is crucial. And again, this, this lawyer is an expert in the law, right? So Genesis through Deuteronomy, the prophets, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, they're all his domain. He knows the technical answer to his question already, and he's going to demonstrate that in a moment. So what, what drives him to ask and test Jesus in this way? Some people think he's, he, he was actually... You could term him a seeker, as it were, and you could say, well, he's, he's concerned that in his knowledge and in his pursuits, he's not attaining it, and he's not achieving it, and so he's really genuinely, humbly coming before Jesus and saying, help me, I'm, I feel like I'm missing something, but I'm not sure that I see that, and some of this is reading between the lines, but I think that he has heard Jesus say things that he thinks is error, and so he's challenging Jesus, and he wants to draw Jesus out and hopefully get him in trouble and have him um, incur the wrath of, of those that are around him. Some of the things that, that he's heard, if you look back up just a little bit, listen to what Jesus said in verse 20 to his disciples. He had sent them out to spread the gospel and to cast out demons, and they came back rejoicing. And he says in verse 20, Nevertheless, don't rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. And so in that moment, Jesus gives them assurance of salvation, says, your names are indelibly inscribed in heaven. And this, this lawyer hears that and goes, wow, yeah, that's, that's, some, that's some assurance right there. I'm not sure about this guy's authority to do that. He's also heard Jesus denigrate the wisdom of intelligence. You can read into that an attack on the religious intelligentsia of the day. While Jesus also elevated his own role in distributing eternal knowledge and life. Look at verse 21. Jesus prays and says, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent, ouch, and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, 
and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And so in that moment, Jesus elevates Himself as being the one to spread the knowledge of the Father to those that are around Him. And He's also raised up His own teachings and actions as the summation of the, the, the salvific desires and foretellings of the kings and the prophets. Look in verse um, 21, uh, 23. Jesus turns to the disciples. He says, Privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings read Moses, Elijah, Elisha, David, Josiah, okay? Many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them. These prophets and kings wished to hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And so Jesus holds himself up as the, the, the things that to see and to hear that the prophets and kings wished to see and yet didn't in their day because Jesus is the summation and the fulfillment of all those things. And so all of this, I think, goes against what this lawyer is and how he lives his life, what he's been trained to do, which is to say that you obey the law to gain life. And so he challenges Jesus, wanting to entrap him into contradicting the law and thus drawing the, the ire of the people around him. That's why he says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So what does Jesus say? Verse 26, and he said to him, what is written in the law? How does it read to you? So brilliantly, Jesus doesn't take the bait. He turns it back, and he asks the lawyer to explain his own answer in his own ground of expertise, because Jesus was not about contradicting or negating the law. Jesus was about fulfilling the law. And so the lawyer would find no success in getting him to contradict God's word. So this lawyer then has to answer his own question, and he accurately pulls a summation of the Old Testament law from the Scriptures. And as he pulls this summary out, we find him describing then the answer to the question, and the answer which is the true character of a kingdom heir. In verse 27, the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And these statements are pulled from Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19, 18. That's the, the neighbor portion. And if you remember, Jesus actually used the same type of answer to answer the question when uh, a similar lawyer wanted to challenge him and said, teacher, what's the greatest commandment in the law? And so Jesus pulls this type of statement out and says, this is, on this hang the law and the prophets. Everything can be associated to loving God with all your being and to loving your neighbor as yourself. And so where this lawyer has a tendency in his life and in his communication to complicate um, the law and how to live according to the law, he actually knows there's a summary, and Jesus knows there's a summary as well. Jesus even acknowledges in his answer in verse 28, look at that, he says, and he said to him, you have answered correctly. Good lawyer, you got that right. Do this, and you will live. So the lawyer's answer is technically right, and Jesus says, you got it right. If you do this, if you demonstrate this, and you demonstrate it continuously and characteristically and unceasingly and without break and without fail, which all of that is in the type of imperative that Jesus used, then you'll live. Do this and continue to do it and you will live. See, this, his answer 
It is the character of a kingdom heir. He loves. One who's going to inherit eternal life loves. He loves God, and he loves his neighbor. Sweet. Lawyers probably think, that's a piece of cake. Seems fairly simple, relatively easy to do. I mean, you kind of think some nice thoughts about God and think some nice thoughts about the people around you, and you're good to go. That's love, right? Well, if you stop for a moment and consider even how it's described in that passage, it's a little bit of a wake-up call. Let's start with the love for God. We can see that it's personal and pervasive. It's a personal love because you shall love the Lord your God. God never intended for Israel to be this sort of robotic community of people who were just out to obey him. God always wanted the individual hearts of Israelites to be um, inextricably bound to him in covenant love and obedience. So you're to love your God, not your grandpa's God or your cousin's God or your neighbor's God, but your God. And it's such a pervasive love as well. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart. That's, that's not like, you know, I heart you, I love you type notion of, uh, of heart. The heart is the, the seed of volition, of emotion, of, it's your center of being as it were. And you have to love him with all of that. And you have to love him with all of your soul, which is the, your, your spiritual essence that animates your body. You have to love him with all of your strength, your power, and your vitality, and your energy. And you have to love him with all of your mind, your mental faculties, and your intelligence, and your, your rational capabilities. And the point in this is not to like kind of chop us up and to say, okay, make sure that each part of you is, is in line. The point is to say, in sum and in totality, you must love God with everything. And often we think of our love for God as being some sort of kind of fuzzy little warm feeling that we, that we feel. And um, it comes when we think of Him. It comes when there's you know, it's maybe some low lighting and some nice music on Sunday morning, and we think, oh, I love God. Or it comes when we're in the midst of the week, and this blessing comes upon us, and we think, oh, I love God. What a nice feeling. Okay? But that's not love here. Love, in, 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 in these words, and even from the Old Testament onward, the idea of love more refers to an understanding of who God is, a wholehearted embrace of who He is, and then a humbly submissive response according to the knowledge of who He is. And that's love. It's not just I heart God, but I understand, I embrace Him, and I, and I willingly submit myself and my life to Him, and that's this word love. It's not affection in our contemporary understanding of affection and love. Lenski, a very helpful commentator, notes that it implies that we know the true God and all His greatness and His grace and that we accordingly turn to Him with all our being. That's what it means to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Mr. Lawyer, you want to inherit eternal life? Love God that way. All the time. No breaks. No failings. Go for it. Oh, and by the way, on top of that, love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Now, I'm not going to lie. I think I love myself. I have great affection for myself. I treat myself well. 
I like to meet my own needs. I like to satisfy my own desires if possible. I like to take care of myself. I like to do the things that I like to do. And that's, that's, that's how I love myself. You're maybe a little bit better, and the lawyer's probably like me, and we're kind of in the bottom of the barrel here, and he's thinking, man, I, I really love myself. And when you consider then loving your neighbor as yourself, boy, that ups, ups the ante. Maybe it kind of gives you pause for a second and starts you thinking, well, <laughs> okay, this is the love I'm supposed to have for God, and this is the love I'm supposed to have for my neighbor. But I don't know if I can do that. I might end up failing in that. And if the command is a continuous, persistent, unceasing, unbreaking thing, that doesn't look good for me. But maybe, maybe if I can tweak the definition then I can meet that. Maybe if I can define love and God and neighbor the way I want to, then, then, then I might be able to check off those boxes and, 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 uh, and justify himself, as verse 29 says, by redefining the, the, under, the understanding of this command. Verse 29, after Jesus says, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. The lawyer wishing to justify himself, wishing to make it seem as if he's in line with the command and with the standard and with the understanding of what a, a person who's going to inherit the kingdom looks like and lives like, wishing to justify himself, he says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And again, thinking maybe, maybe if I can redefine that and get that to fit in my lifestyle and my terms, then I'm okay. And so here he asks for a clarification and what he receives is a clarification on the difficulty of the character of a kingdom heir. Now, when he says, who is my neighbor, it's a loaded question because there's a preconceived understanding here. In the Jewish culture um, and, and understanding, there were, there were partitions amongst people, and those partitions defined who your neighbor was. Neighbor... It, it, was a very adjectival word. It, was, it really kind of just communicates nearby, and then they use it as a noun and say, well, the one who is nearby, the one who I have something to do with kind of near me. And so they looked at it and said, well, the, the neighbor I must love is my covenant community, the Jews around me. Okay, maybe sometimes the non-Jew who has converted to Judaism and is now a proselyte, well, we'll kind of wrap him in that, but depends. And then some of the Jews had a tendency to say, well, actually... You know, you actually have to love your neighbor, but you can hate your enemies. You remember how Jesus had to, had to cut the legs out from under that one in Matthew 5? He said, you've heard it said, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the point. So that was their understanding. You can love the people that are around you, but if they're your enemy, that's okay. You can just let them go. And well, okay, so the Pharisees had a tendency to say, well, you don't really even have to love people who aren't Pharisees because they're not really worth it. And so as they took those commands, they then would just sort of segment the people into, yeah, needing to be loved. No, nah, not needing to be loved. Yes, my neighbor, I'll love him. No, not my neighbor, so I won't worry about that. So really, the general understanding was to love those around you who were convenient and easy to love. That's what the lawyer was trying to find out. So who's my neighbor? Can it just be the people that I like and that I'm similar to and that I'm around and... It's just easy, which makes sense to me, right? That's, that's my natural tendency. It's going to be honest with you. It's easy to love those whom it's easy to love. 
So the lawyer thinks that he can succeed in fulfilling the law if he gets to define the commandment that way. But as Jesus clarifies the character of a kingdom heir here, he takes the lawyer's preconceived ideas and he flips them on his head and explodes them from within. And he does it by telling a story. Let's look at verse 30. In response to the lawyer's question, Jesus replied and said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now that doesn't mean a whole lot to us. Right? But in that context, it's all very familiar. They would assume, oh, okay, sweet, a Jewish guy. He's doing a journey that we all know. And we know that's a dangerous journey. Okay? Going from Jerusalem to Jericho involved a 3,300-foot decline in elevation along a 17-mile path. And so it was a fairly steep journey. And it was, very, it was, it was pockmarked with caves. There were a lot, it was a very rocky terrain. And so it was fraught with brigands, thieves, robbers, and so all this pops in their head as soon as Jesus says, there was a man, there's just a guy, going down from Jerusalem, down elevation, Jerusalem to Jericho. Ah, figures, he fell among robbers, and they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. That's something they could relate to. It happens, especially along that road. It made sense to them. There's this guy robbed, and not like they just took his, his money bags, they, they took his clothes, they took his animal, they beat him half to death, and they leave him bleeding on the side of the road. So all that's in their mind as they listen to this story right there. And then they hear the, the hopeful music. And by chance, a priest was going down on that road. Oh, yeah, priest, holy guy, godly guy, does the sacrifices, knows the law, one of our, one of our religious elites He'll, he'll respond rightly. He'll take care of the guy. By chance, a priest was going down on that road. He'll be the neighbor. He knows this guy's a neighbor. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side and just leaves him. That's a disappointment. But, but likewise, a Levite also, oh, good, the priest failed. Maybe the Levite, I mean, he's, he's, the, he's the priest's assistants, right? They take care of the, the, the temple and all the things that are holy and according to God and his worship. And so they, he'll know how to respond and he'll know how to take care of this guy. Likewise, a Levite also, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now notice that two of the religious elites of the day followed the same pattern. They happen to be walking by, they see him, and they cross the other side of the road and keep on going. So he's gone through the priest, he's gone through the, the Levite, and then he says, Samaritan. In the language, literally, it's, 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 he's, he's explaining and explaining, and suddenly he just goes, boom, Samaritan. And so we don't necessarily relate to the word Samaritan the same way as they would, but in their understanding, even to say the word Samaritan kind of elicits this, okay, They were half-breed, religious uh, cast-offs. They, they, as, a, as, a, as a subset, they came from the time of the exile when the Jewish people intermarried with the pagans of the land that had been imported from other kingdoms and set there to populate it. So they were a half-breed. They disagreed over the place of worship. They thought, okay, Mount Gerizim. The Jews thought Jerusalem. Neither one of them would let each other worship there. The, Jew, the Jews only let them worship in the temple on the outer courts, which set them as Gentiles. So that's pretty offensive. And then the, the Samaritans wouldn't even let the Jews come up to Mount Gerizim. 
They weren't allowed to intermarry. They weren't allowed to have social interaction. And it was so bad, in fact, that the, the Samaritans at one point, a band of them came and brought human bones down to the Jewish temple. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like a really bad college prank. And they spread the human bones amongst the, te- the, the temple in Jerusalem to defile it. They were just out to get each other that badly. At the end of chapter 9, just a couple chapter uh, chapter back, um, Jesus and his disciples had, had been traveling towards Jerusalem and they wanted to stay in a Samaritan town, but in verse 53 it says they didn't receive him. Why? Because he was traveling towards Jerusalem. And so when James and John saw that they refused Jesus' hospitality, these Samaritans, their response, which made total sense to them in that day, was, oh, Lord, you want us to just call down fire and consume this town? What a bunch of punks not letting you, letting you stay here. I mean, they're, they're, they're dogs who might as well just burn up. That's, that's what the, te- the, 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 the relationship was like between Jews and Samaritans, okay? It's almost like, hopefully there's, yeah, there's a few kids. Okay, you guys got to work with me because I have five small children, so we watch Disney movies. It's almost like The Lion King, where you've got King Mufasa and then his brother Scar, and Scar's little minions were hyenas, right? And every time the hyenas heard the word Mufasa, they go, oh, they shudder in just disgust and fear. Oh, it's the same way here. They hear the word Samaritan, they go, oh, yuck, Samaritans. So Jesus is telling this story, and suddenly he says, Samaritan, but a Samaritan who was on a journey came upon him. Same pattern, came upon him. We're in verse 33, and when he saw him, here the pattern breaks, he felt compassion, and he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds. It's his enemy, someone they wouldn't have said hello to necessarily in the town square, they wouldn't do business with, they wouldn't worship together, but he saw him, and he felt compassion, and he came to him, and he bandaged up his wounds, he poured oil and wine on them. And then he didn't just leave him and say, I hope you feel better. He put him on his own beast and brought him to an inn and took care of him. It's not like he even just dropped him off and said, all the best. He brought him and he took care of him. And on the next day, so the guy paused his journey and stayed there for the night to take care of the the man who had been beaten. On the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, when I return, I will repay you. That was two days of wages, enough to provide for the guy's um, well-being and care at an inn, food and lodging for anywhere from a week to, to six weeks. And so he puts a deposit down and says, take care of him. And if you've got to spend anything else to take care of him before I'm back, and when I come back, that's on me. Put it on my account. I mean, he did, he did triage, he did extended care, and then he did follow-up of this man's need. And so what we see here in this story is that Jesus has sought to clarify this idea of love for neighbor, but he's done it by rephrasing the issue. According to Jewish standard, the man on the side of the road should have been a neighbor to the priest. According to the Jewish standard, the man on the side of the road should have been a a neighbor to the Levite. But neither of those worked out, and yet when this Samaritan comes along, 
The focus then is on the Samaritan who is the neighbor. And so Jesus rephrases that question. And he says to the lawyer in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell into the robber's hands? He's not asking who, whose neighbor was the man who got robbed and beaten. He's asking who was the neighbor to the man who got robbed and beaten. You see that flip? It's a different focus. It's a different emphasis. It's a focus not on ascertaining who is the neighbor, but on ascertaining of how can I be a neighbor. The lawyer can't avoid the right answer. It's pretty obvious who responded to the need. So he responds, the one, in verse 37, the lawyer said, the one who showed mercy towards him. And then Jesus said to him, go and do the same. Go and continuously, unceasingly, without break, without fail, do the same. Be that type of person to those that are around you, unceasingly, without fail, without break, and do the same. By saying that, Jesus decimates the lawyer's self-righteous attempt at pursuing and attaining eternal life because of his own religious pedigree or because of his own uh, actions or because of his own knowledge of, of the Old Testament law. The lawyer here must recognize at this point that he has failed to love God the way that it's mandated. He must recognize at this point that he has failed to love to be the kind of neighbor, to love his neighbor as is mandated here, as the Samaritan exemplified. Because chances are very, 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 very good that had there been a Samaritan lying on the side of the road and this lawyer passed by, he'd probably go to the other side of the road and walk on by. So what, what do we do with this story? I admit, I mean, that this is one of the joys of studying. The main point of this is a little different than I had first thought. I had at first thought it was going to be the main point of rah, rah, love God, love your neighbor. Yes, go, do it. Um, and then we'd all walk out with a, um, an invigorated sense of that. I thought that Jesus was going to tell the lawyer, and by implication us, how to live <clears throat> and I think there's, there's, there's implications there. But I, I think I was wrong about the main point. I think the main point is to bring us to the end of ourselves. I think that the main point was he wanted to bring the lawyer to the end of himself and his own attempts at attaining eternal life because it all hinges on that first question of teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This is not a, some sort of summarized manual for behaving in such a way that we earn salvation. We cannot do that. And Jesus, I think, was trying to help the lawyer realize you cannot do that. You cannot love God that way. You cannot love your neighbor that way in such a way that you go, got it. I'm good to go. Heaven, here I come can't happen. If we fail to love God even once, then that sin is enough to condemn us to hell. If we fail to love our neighbor even once as ourselves, then that is sin and enough to condemn us to hell. And that's the point of the law, right, is to show us our inability, to show us how much we break 
God's will and law and rule and to show our inability to meet those things. And so Jesus is seeking to answer the lawyer's first question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life by showing him that you cannot do anything to inherit eternal life. You cannot achieve this character of a kingdom heir. The standard is too high. It's too high for us as well. We cannot achieve it. We cannot earn it, do something to accomplish it. And I think that's why Luke has included this portion in his gospel, to highlight that human works cannot attain to eternal life. It's the same for us. If your hope is in that, you're going to fail. So I hope Jesus takes that hope from you and throws it out the window if your hope is in being able to somehow be or do something enough to attain eternal life. You'll notice that Luke doesn't tell us the lawyer's response. Maybe he was like the rich young ruler and he walked away disappointed and unwilling to submit. Or maybe he got it. Maybe he came to the end of himself and recognized his inability to achieve eternal life. Hopefully he admitted his need then for a Messiah, for help, recognized Jesus then as the one who was fulfilling the law and had hope and assurance of eternal life. If you remember what I, what I pointed out back in verse um, 20, and he told his disciples to rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven, he told them to rejoice because as they followed Jesus as their Messiah, that act of faith, of trust, is what recorded their names in heaven. Not in obedience to every jot and tittle of the law because that was not possible. And so we need to come to the end of ourselves and realize we cannot achieve eternal life by anything we do. Nothing. We are too sin sick and shot through with the cancer of, of really of self-worship to be able to love God this way and to love neighbors this way. Galatians chapter 3, read that sometimes, that it affirms this whole notion that the law was never even meant to save. The law was meant to, to condemn and guide us as a tutor to Christ, to salvation. And so we have to come to the end of ourselves. We have to first recognize our need for a Savior and confess our sins place our trust in Him and His work on the cross that offers forgiveness of sins, and then trust and hope and know of the assurance that comes of our resurrection from the dead because of His resurrection from the dead and the fact that He now lives. I think that's the main takeaway. We cannot do it, and we must turn to someone who can. But then there's a second takeaway, and that this, once we confess and are saved, we are kingdom heirs. We then strive to keep God's law. We then strive to live it out because that is the character of a kingdom heir. That is the character of one who will inherit eternal life. And so once we fall into that, that domain, then we seek to be holy as God is holy. Because of our love for our Savior, we seek to obey His commands and so then these two summary statements do provide a good guideline for our life. Love your God. 
If you've trusted Jesus as your Savior, then love your God. There will be no aspect of your life that's not in the process of being submitted to God as His will is made known to you through the Word. Because that's what love does. When you love God, you know Him, you embrace Him, and you respond to Him accordingly. And it will involve your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, your whole being. And then you love your neighbor. And Romans 13 echoes this command and brings it into our world as well. You be the neighbor to those around you. And this transcends race. This transcends age. This transcends sexual orientation. This transcends gender. This transcends struggles that a person might be evidencing. And instead, it relies heavily on the sovereignty of God. As you look around and say, who is my neighbor or who can I be a neighbor to? What have I to do with them? Where is their need? And it reaches out with that sacrificial and intentional love and cares for them, each person that we can be a neighbor to just as much as we love ourselves. I think this is a complicated principle to apply, so it's helpful to just discuss it briefly. Because who we are and, and what, who is near us and what their needs are can vary from place to place. Some people would say that this is then a call to meet every need that you even remotely come across. For instance, every starving child in Africa needs to, be, needs to have their need met by you. And if you do not do that, then you are failing to love your neighbor. That understanding is, is not, does not fit this story does not fit the idea of neighbor, and it leads to helplessness and despair and inability to help anybody after approximately one hour of trying to meet all those needs that way. Because if you remember Jesus' story, in verse 31, it says this, and by chance. Now, this is Jesus speaking. He knows there's not chance. He's saying it happened. It so happened that this man was lying there, and these three, these three people walked by. Two of them saw him and crossed by the other side, and one of them responded with compassion, and that one decided to be the neighbor. That's why I say applying this principle relies heavily on the sovereignty of God. Who does he have our paths cross? Who do we happen to have something to do with? Who is nearby us in our life context? Now, you could defeat that by trying to board up the windows in your house, keep the windows of your car up, and sprint through your underground tunnel from your cubicle to your car every day and never cross paths with anybody. But that's a whole other set of issues, right? And that's not how God wants us to live our lives. He calls us to live for His glory, to reach out to those that are around us and to engage in relationship. And so we do that. You live it fully for God. Engage people and their needs as you trust God to reveal how you can be a neighbor to them. There are neighbors. You need to be a neighbor to those within your church, those whom you have something to do with, those who are nearby to you in your church. There are needs, physical and spiritual, of those neighbors that you can meet. Think of your care group. Think of those who you are around in the ministry that you serve in. Think of those who you happen to sit down the aisle from or down the row from every Sunday and and this Sunday, maybe they look downcast. Find those needs. Be the neighbor. Be aware of your actual physical neighbors in school and your work contexts. 
You have something to do with those people almost every day. And so those are opportunities to get to know them and their needs, both physical and spiritual, and try to love them as yourself. I was convicted, reading this, that almost every morning as I take my daughters to school, I have a little, uh, little chit-chat conversation with Les. <laughs> so it's like an 80-year-old crossing guard. It's fantastic. He's out there saying hi to the kids and helping them, and I, I stop and talk with him, and I have something to do with Les. I need to be the neighbor to Les. So if you see me in the next couple of weeks, you can ask me, Aaron, have you been a neighbor to Les? Have you pursued his physical and spiritual well-being? Does he know Christ? I mean, he's, he's, he's on the elderly side. Is there a way I could serve him and demonstrate the love of Christ that way? Maybe it's your physical neighbors who live next door, and they have physical needs you can take care of. You can mow their lawn. You can pay a bill. You can babysit some kids. Maybe their needs are spiritual, and they're headed to hell, and you haven't told them about the way to... Uh, Avoid that and have Jesus as their Savior. Be the neighbor. Keep your eyes open for the broken strangers around you, the woman who's weeping at the bus stop as you wait for your bus. You have something to do with her. Feel compassion. Feel it in your gut. The kid with no shoes in the back alley that maybe you walk across at some point. Not every kid with no shoes is your responsibility, but if you come across someone, then be the neighbor. Feel compassion. Be the neighbor. The homeless person holding up the sign. It's easy to walk by and drive by without making eye contact, and yet maybe there's a way to wisely and caringly care for their need. It may not make much sense. It may not be safe. But it seems to be what Jesus is calling those who are going to inherit eternal life to do. And it's very possible, even in the church, you may not particularly like some of the people that you're around. You may not have anything in common with them other than sort of circumstantial overlap, but know that circumstantial overlap is from God for you to live in and to do something with. You have the knowledge that God in His sovereignty has caused your paths to cross, and He's put you near them and them near you into the category of, I have something to do with them, that idea of neighbor in these contexts. Kevin DeYoung in his book, What's the Mission of the Church?, has a principle that's helpful just even to sort through this because our primary mandate as a church, as we've talked about with Joel James and in other, other passages, is not to open up a food pantry and develop alternative housing solutions as Mission Road. But there is a principle of moral proximity, as Kevin DeYoung writes in a very helpful way, that each of us as individuals need to assess our lives in. Basically, the closer the need to us in proximity, the closer the obligation that you have to meet the need. For example, if a family in your church loses everything in a flood, and you could take that and put it into your, your next-door neighbor, <clears throat> your immediate office mate, and insurance won't replace most of it, you have an obligation to do something. If you let them starve on the streets and become homeless, you do not have the love of God within you. But if the same thing happens to families three states over and you see it on the news... Uh, you could generously give, but there's not the obligation. He says, the principle of moral proximity is no excuse to ignore your neighbor in need, neither does it preclude the appropriate urging some of us need to venture outside our comfortable circles of moral proximity. Ouch. That's one of the reasons that my wife and I wanted to jump into providing foster care, was we looked at our lives and we said... We have a very kind of marshmallow 
comfy circle of exposure, and we could find some new neighbors. We could be a neighbor to some different types of people. And it's, it's been uncomfortable. It's been hard. It's been good. So there's discernment needed in all of this, but I, wanted you, I want to encourage you to be open and to be aware, to know the depth of your sin and the love that God has shown to you, and then demand to have your radar up and to say, I don't care if it's uncomfortable. Who's around me that I need to be the neighbor to because I am loving God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so I'm going to submit to him in this regard. Uh, discuss this in your care groups even tonight. I'm just saying, look, who, who is my neighbor that I'm maybe ignoring or refusing to acknowledge? <laughs> or maybe you need to find some neighbors in and out of the church. And always remember, none of this earns eternal life. None of it. You hear that? None of this earns eternal life because that's Jesus' main point. You cannot. So turn to Jesus. If you have not turned to Jesus, turn to Him, confess your sins, give your life to Him, and trust in Him for your salvation and Him alone. But then as you do that, recognize that your life belongs to Him. Your love belongs to Him. And that's how He wants you to expend yourself and your affections and your service and your care, is to God and to being the neighbor to those that are around you.